David's extreme response to Absalom's death sparks both shame and controversy within the camp of David's supporters. This is the 41st sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel as we segue once again into chapter 19. Chapter 19, the first 23 verses, the first 23 verses, 1 through 23. Beloved of the Lord, as we read of disorder in the kingdom, by inspiration of God, the prophet writes... And it was told Joab, Behold, the king weepeth and mourneth for Absalom. And the victory that was turned into mourning unto all the people. For the people heard say that day how the king was grieved for his son. And the people got them by stealth that day into the city, as people being ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab came into the house to the king and said, Thou hast shamed this day the faces of all thy servants, which this day have saved thy life and the lives of thy sons and thy daughters and the lives of thy wives and the lives of thy concubines, and that thou lovest thine enemies and hatest thy friends. For thou hast declared this day that thou regardest neither princes nor servants, For this day I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all we had died this day, then it had pleased thee well. Now therefore, arise, go forth and speak comfortably unto thy servants. For I swear by the Lord, if thou go not forth, there will not tarry one with thee this night. And that will be worse unto thee than all the evil that befell thee from thy youth until now. Then the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told unto all the people, saying, Behold, the king doth sit in the gate. And all the people came before the king, for Israel had fled every man to his tent. And all the people were at strife, and all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us out of the hand of our enemies, and he delivered us out of the hand of the Philistines. And now he is fled out of the land for Absalom. And Absalom, who we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why speak ye not a word of bringing the king back? And King David sent to Zadok and to Abathar the priest, saying, Speak unto the elders of Judah, saying, Why are ye the last to bring the king back to his house, seeing the speech of all Israel is come to the king, even to his house? Ye are my brethren, ye are my bones and my flesh. Wherefore then are ye the last to bring back the king? And say ye to Amasa, Art thou not of my bone and of my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if thou be not captain of the host before me continually in the room of Joab. And he bowed the heart of all the men of Judah, even as the heart of one man. So they sent this word unto the king, Return thou and all thy servants. So the king returned and came to Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king to conduct the king over Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, which was of Behram, hasted and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons and his twenty servants with him, and they went over Jordan before the king. And there went over a ferry boat to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was come over Jordan and said unto the king, 
Let not my Lord impute iniquity unto me, neither do thou remember that which thy servant did perversely the day that my Lord the king went out of Jerusalem, that the king should take it to his heart. For thy servant doth know that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I am come the first this day of all, the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my Lord the king. But Abishai the son of Zeruiah answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be adversaries unto me? Shall there any man be put to death this day in Israel? For do not I know that I am this day king over Israel? Therefore the king said unto Shimei, Thou shalt not die. And the king swear unto him. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews in chapter 12, beginning verse 11, writes this unto us, 11 through 13, by the same spirit that moved the prophet, so does the Hebrew writer write unto us. Hebrews in chapter 12, 11, 12, and 13. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. This is the word of the Lord. The grass with us, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now in direct opposition to the king's commandment not to kill his rebel son Absalom, Joab takes matters into his own hands and executes the rebel and then buries him in a most dishonorable fashion in the wood with many stones heaped upon him. Now once the assassination reaches the king, he is beside himself with grief over the death of his son Absalom. Now we can understand grief over the father's recognition that his son was killed, executed in such a way, even with all of the baggage of his rebellion, we understand the father's sorrow. But David's sorrow obviously has gone too far in light of the circumstances. The men of David's army, those men of Judah, liberated David. They liberated David and his entire family, his entire company from almost certain death. The Lord at that time in the light of David's love for the Lord and the Lord's love of David, the Lord was mighty at work in the situation to deliver Judah and David from the hand of Absalom's army. And yet, as we read here, David is more concerned about his son, who was the reason for the terrible circumstances that David and his company had to endure, than for his own army. And so he wails over and over, my son, my son, oh Absalom, my son, Absalom covering his face and walking up and down in the midst of the camp. And the wailing of the king, this excessive wailing of the king over the death of his son, however, brought shame and confusion upon the entire nation. So instead of rejoicing over the victory that the Lord had granted, the people became ashamed. Now as far as Joab is concerned, enough is enough with the crying and the lamenting over Absalom. And he is determined to do something about it. We read this in verse 1. It was told to Joab, Behold, the king weepeth and mourneth for Absalom. And the intention is that he's excessively weeping. It's not that he's, he's sad or he's weeping. And that would be, of course, natural. But 
there's an excessive situation here. Now, God anticipates why David's excessive lamentation is so inappropriate in the next several verses. In verse 2, we read this. And the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people, for the people heard say that day how the king was grieved for his son. And as a result, the people just were ashamed and they, and they crept away into the city. They were, they were stealing away into their own tents as if they had been defeated. Not because they were victorious, but as if they were defeated. And this was unacceptable to Joab. Now consider the unintended consequences of David's lamentation. Firstly, the routing of Absalom's army was a great victory for David and his followers. That is a fact. The fact that Absalom was killed in the defeat. If you're a warrior, if you're a king, you would anticipate that the king, who was the rebel, might be killed in battle. That should have been anticipated by David, as all rebellious kings and generals are usually killed in battle. And yet David's commandment was, don't kill Absalom. Make sure he is safe and he comes to me. But Absalom had to be killed. Joab understand that he had to be killed, otherwise he might rise up again at a later date when he was stronger, when David was weaker, when, when even Joab was weaker as the war chief of Israel. And he might then, Absalom might then assault the king in his realm. And Joab understood this. He was a very cunning warrior. Everyone knew that Absalom slew his brother in an act of cold-blooded vengeance, which made him guilty of premeditated murder, and yet David did nothing about it. David's excessive lamentation for Absalom minimized the victory that David's followers had achieved in behalf of the king. And so instead of a great celebration, which was the proper thing to do, the people mourned. There was great discouragement. They were demoralized. And this, secondly, resulted in the people being ashamed for their conquest. The scripture says that they were so ashamed as if they were defeated in total humiliation by retreating from an enemy that was stronger. Adam Clark in his commentary says this, instead of rejoicing that a most unnatural and ruinous rebellion had been squashed, the people mourned over their own success because they saw their king so immoderately affected for the loss of his worthless son. Notice even Adam, Adam Clark recognizes that Absalom was worthless. He was a, a tyrant, rebellious son, murderous, adulterous. Now, perhaps unaware of what his excessive lamentation was causing the people, David just keeps going. He just keeps crying. And we see this in verse 4. He covered his face. He cried. But notice, the scripture is very detailed. He wasn't just weeping. He cried out with a loud voice. Everybody had to know. He made sure everyone knew that he was grieving over Absalom. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son. Again, as we saw last time, that even the name of Absalom is quite ironic. It means the father of peace, and yet he was anything but a peaceful man. So we must conclude that this weeping was an open show, a public declaration of David's grief. Otherwise, how would the people know he was so grieved? And of course, that's why they were ashamed. The Reverend Howie's concurs. Notice what he says. The king's unutterable distress was noised in the camp and dampened the joy of the returning conquerors with his face covered. 
He refuses to see his generals and with the most passionate exclamations bewailing his son seems insensible to every other emotion but inconsolable grief. Discouraged with such a reception, the soldiers, instead of a triumphant entry, steal into the city as if from a defeat and seem ready to desert a cause where they meet so ill a reception for having hazarded their lives. And then he says this, They who are exalted above another should in their deepest afflictions put on a good countenance lest they communicate their despondency and ruin thereby their affairs. Now seeing the result of the king's uncontrollable lamentation, Joab, greatly perturbed, greatly perplexed by the reaction of the king and the effect, more more so the effect that it had on the people, sharply rebukes the grieving king for his insensitivity and actually for his self-pity. Now notice how he says this in verse 5 and following. And Joab came into the house to the king and he said, Thou hast shamed this day the faces of all thy servants. So just picture Joab. He bursts into the king's chambers, and he says, Thou hast shamed this day the faces of all thy servants, which that they have saved thy life, and the life of thy sons, and of thy daughters, and the lives of thy wives, and the lives of thy concubines, and that thou lovest thine enemies, and hatest thy friends. For thou hast declared this day that thou regardest neither princes nor servants. For this day I perceive that if Absalom had lived, and all we had died this day, then it had pleased thee well. I mean, can you imagine? And this is what was being telegraphed by David. Now, there are several things that should be noted by Joab's rebuke. Firstly, it was a proper rebuke. Joab was able to clearly see the entire picture as a result of his objectivity, at least at that point, his objectivity in the matter. And here again, we see Joab, as we learned last week, as a type of the law of God. Very clear cut. This is wrong. You're doing what is wrong. Let me rebuke you. Absalom, he understood, and everyone understood, and even David understood. Absalom was an enemy. Therefore, without passion or prejudice, he had to die. That's what the law would dictate. That's what the law of God decrees, and Joab is acting as a picture of the law. Those who sin without sincere repentance, which is a fundamental doctrine of Scripture, must come under the consequences of God's wrath, of God's rebuke. Job shows no mercy to the rebel in the same way that the law of God shows no mercy to the rebellious sinner who rebels against the king of kings without repentance. And that's a key phrase, without repentance. Absalom was a proud man. He knew exactly what he was doing. And yet, without repentance, he wanted to be the king. Just like Adam's race wants to be God. He wanted to be the king. Secondly, Joab's rebuke was made boldly and without apology. Notice how he, he just bursts in. He doesn't, he, 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 he doesn't address the king. He doesn't even address his Lord as king. David is king. Yes, they're related. But notice, no salutation, no bowing, nothing to insinuate that he was paying David any respect whatsoever. He just jumps in and says, Thou a shameless day, all the faces of thy servants. He simply cuts to the chase. He cuts into David immediately with his rebuke. Thou hast shamed the faces of all thy servants. It reminded David, I would think if I was David at this point, it might remind me of a time in the past when another prophet said, Thou art the man. Thou art the man that has shamed the face of all of your people, Judah. Thirdly, interestingly enough, Joab's concern 
was for the people who had stood by, that nation of Judah, who had stood by David through the toughest of times while Absalom was hunting him. Is this how you're going to treat them now? And Joab would have none of that. What he's telling is that Joab seems, and I have to, when I speak about Joab, I have to say seems, because we don't know who this guy really is. He's squirrely. He's this way, that way, this way, another way. But it seems, at least initially, that he values some semblance of loyalty. At least a loyalty that encourages his own cause. Remember, it was in Job's best interest to execute Absalom. Even though the man deserved death, Joab was ensuring his position as war chief as well. Because if Absalom won, Joab would be out, probably even executed, and Absalom would have a new war chief. And yet it seems that he's at least concerned for the army that David has shamed. And so we see here how Job shows loyalty to his band of warrior brothers. Absalom, on the other hand, was not loyal. David's followers were loyal, even in the face of their own possible destruction. And this shows a stark dichotomy between Joab and Absalom. Now, if we're going to look in its representational form, which is what we should do, because these represent things of the gospel... It is the law of God that is loyal to what is right, whereas rebellious man is not. The fourth point. Joab is adding specifics to his rebuke. Notice he didn't just say, you're shaming your people, you're shaming your army, you're shaming the people. No, he adds specifics, making sure that David understands the gravity of what is going on. That he understands that if it wasn't for the people that... that he was liberated by, he would be dead, but so would everyone else in his whole company be dead. Notice, that was shamed this day the faces of all thy servants, which this day have saved our life. But if that wasn't enough, the fifth point, if that wasn't enough that David's life was spared and his servants, and perhaps the conquest over Absalom spared the lives of, notice what he says, David's sons, David's daughters, David's wives, his concubines. And so he's adding all of this, Job is adding all of this in a very cunning way to add these groups to have been saved by the conquest. Now, if you remember, David stated that he would have rather died than Absalom being killed. If Joab argued that by the victory, David's life alone was spared, David might have told him that that's fine with me. But no, not only your life, David, you thought so little of it, but your wives, your sons, your daughters, your concubines, your servants, your princes, your army, all of us. You see, this entire event, it wasn't about David. It wasn't only about David. Joab is not saying, look, this is not about you only. Your situation here has far-reaching consequences. And so Joab is careful to state that the conquest over Absalom spared more than just David's life. Others too were spared. And six point, Joab wasn't finished. In fact, he's just getting started with his rebuke, which turns into an ultimatum. Notice the indictment against David. First, he charges David with loving his enemies. What a blow that must have been. You love your enemies more than you love me and your army and your sons and your servants and your concubines. You love your enemies more than you love us. 
Notice again the objectivity and clarity of Joab. Job was clearly able to divorce himself from his passion to rightly identify the enemy of David, his followers of the tribe of Judah, and the kingdom of God as Absalom. This is a lesson for us, and there are always so many practical lessons. Not only do we see in the Old Testament types and figures pointing to the gospel, but we see practical lessons as well. We need to take very, very careful attention to these lessons we need to be able to rightly identify God's enemies. And the only way to do this is by holding them up to the scrutiny of Joab as a type of the law. Isaiah tells us that if they do not, if people do not speak according to the word of God, it means there is no light in them. So we must judge all things by the word of God. We must judge all things by the law of God, which is the same as the word of God. That is how we can rightly identify those who have light and those who are in darkness. That is how we can rightly identify God's enemies and the enemies of the kingdom of God. We have to hold them to the standard of the word of God. At this point in David's life, he was unable to look past his emotional ties. And sometimes that's really hard to do. Because we're just, we're human beings. It's hard to, to, to go past our emotions. That too is a lesson for us. We cannot look at anyone, even those whom we love, and overlook glaring inconsistencies in their walk of obedience. When there's a glaring inconsistency in the walk of obedience, we cannot overlook that because they're our son, or they're our daughter, or they're our cousin, or their uncle, their aunt, our mother, our father, our husband, our wife. That would not be objectivity, and it would not do them any good either. We must be like Joab and identify the individual as a possible enemy of God by calling them to repentance if we do see inconsistencies. Now, it doesn't mean that they are enemies, but if they do fail to acknowledge their transgression, if they show pride like Absalom, if they fail to repent, then then we can be very, very confident that they may just be enemies of the kingdom of God. In the marketplace especially in the marketplace. We must be able to identify the enemies of God, those who are rebellious and repentant. And we are to make no apologies in our condemnation of their actions. You know, today in the, you know, in the South, we're living in the South now, well, we, we just want to love everybody. Just want to love everybody, no matter what. But that is not the scriptural attitude that we must take. We must call people to account, not as a Pharisee, in love, in concern, but call a spade a spade, righteousness, righteousness, sin as what it is. It's rebellion against God. So in the marketplace, we must be astute as to what the Word of God teaches so that we can identify the rebellious, so that we can identify the unrepentant. Job was able to identify Absalom as an enemy because he showed absolutely no repentance. He showed only pride. He rears up the pillar in the king's, in the king's vale, in the king's own pasture. What hubris! What pride! So Job was able to identify Absalom as an enemy because he showed absolutely no repentance. What he did show was hatred, pride, violence against the legitimacy of the king. 
The only conclusion that Job could make is that David has far more love for his enemies than he does for his friends. That was a challenge to the king. He was calling him out. David, you're not thinking right. You're not thinking straight. Consider a further lesson by this statement. Do we show more kindness, patience, tolerance, and willingness to forgive those that are obviously rebels to the cross and the kingly authority of Christ than we do to the household of faith? As with everything thus far in the historical account of David, there is a gospel lesson here to be sure. David clearly stated that he would have given his life for his son Absalom, who was an enemy. And that is actually what Christ did for those who are his enemies. Paul himself, to the church at Rome in chapter 5, tells the believers at Rome that while they were enemies, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And that's why it's so important for Christ to tell the apostles to love their enemies, because that's what he had to do. The distinguishing factor, however, is that the enemies that Christ died for were the elect of God from the foundations of the earth. They were destined by the electing grace and sovereign majesty of Christ to become the sons of God. But they would only become the sons of God as a result of the death and substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord. And that's what David was pointing to when he said that he would have died for his son. There's a gospel parallel there. The seventh point is, with all of what Joab says, he's still not finished. He goes right to the root of what David's actions are telegraphing. Notice what he says, For thou hast declared this day that thou regardest neither princes nor servants. For this day I perceive that if Absalom had lived and we all had died this day, then it would have pleased thee well. You'd rather all of us to die. How insane is that? By David's lamentation, he was causing the people to conclude that he would rather Absalom be spared than and everyone else killed. Joab's rebuke, however, is not just some simple tongue lashing. His rebuke has teeth. In other words, Joab doesn't say, you've done wrong, shame on you. He says, now you've done wrong, shame on you. Here's the consequences that you precipitated. Now you've got to make it right. That's the difference. Now you have to make it right. And there's another important lesson for us. Whenever we are corrected for a sin, we must do everything we can to make it right. Joab didn't say, okay, David, now that I rebuked you, everything's fine. You can just let it rest. It's good. I told you where it's at. That's it. Not so. Joab tells David, he gives him actually, he gives him an ultimatum. He tells David that he must make amends. First, he tells David what he should do. Verse 7. Now therefore arise, get off that throne and make it right. Go forth. I want you to do something. You've been rebuked. Now do something. See, the problem with the modern church is, oh, we identify sin, we rebuke, and then we just leave it. No one believes that they have to make it right anymore. If you've stolen, you've, you've got to pay it back. If you violated a commandment, you have to do something to, to make it right. Because there are always consequences, many unintended consequences that affect other people. So therefore, go forth, get up, arise, go forth and speak comfortably unto thy servants. And he uses this word comfortably, which means in the Hebrew to speak with kind wisdom in order to encourage the people. You've got to, look, you've got to bring them back. You've got to encourage them. You've discouraged them. It's going to be a long road back to encourage them. Because these people risked their lives for you, David. And you don't want to show gratitude by 
cursing them. You want to show them gratitude by encouraging them. Job's counsel, however, should have been enough for David to agree. But Job wants to be sure that David understands the gravity of the situation should he decide not to speak to the people. Now, he did give him that ultimatum, but, you know, David's the king. He could have said, sorry, I'm the king. So he wants to make perfectly sure that David is going to do what he tells him to do. So he warns David. He tells him what is going to befall him if he doesn't act righteously. He tells him that if he refuses, there will be a revolt worse than the rebellion of Absalom. And he says this in verse 7. Now therefore arise, go forth and speak comfortably unto thy servants, for I swear by Yahweh, if thou go not forth, there will not tarry one with thee this night. No one's going to be with you. And that will be worse. Notice, it will be worse. I guarantee it. I swear by God, it's going to be worse unto thee than all the evil that befell thee from thy youth until now. Now, now think about that. From thy youth, way back, it's all going to culminate in this one chastising swoop. Joab's warning. Again, actually it's an ultimatum goes as far back as when David was running from Saul. And this is why Joab reminds David of the difficulties that he faced as a young man, telling him that if he fails to make things right, things will be even worse than when he was young. If you don't rectify the situation, you will be destroyed. Well, David hears, understanding the gravity of the situation, David then sets himself once again in the gate, because that meant he was now going to judge the people. When you sit in the gate, you're sitting as a judge, Then David arose, the king arose, verse 8, and sat in the gate. At this point in the narrative, we have two factions at play. So you understand what's going on here. You have Israel, the tribes of Israel, who sided with Absalom. And then you had the other Israeli tribe, the tribes of Judah, which sided with David. So these two factions, Judah is victorious, Israel is not victorious. David's followers of Judah have fought victoriously for David, but are now discouraged, even shamed and angered by David's insensitivity. The other group, the Israeli group, followed Absalom. Those who followed Absalom of the nation of Israel returned to their houses. They're all defeated. They returned to their houses near the holy city of Jerusalem, and they don't know what David's going to do. Is David going to muster the army and and come and just destroy the Israeli army? They they don't know. They're, They're waiting. They're in their houses. Remember, they lost their head. They lost their leader, Absalom. They suffered a humiliating defeat. Now, they're in this situation and they were following the rebel and there's a truce now, well, sort of, because David won. What's going to be for their future? So they're reflecting upon all that is possible. They're probably afraid that the king might enforce some terrible punishment for them siding with Absalom. We read this in verses 9 and 10. And all the people are at strife throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, the king saved us. Notice what they're doing. They're remembering what David did for them. In other words, maybe they're even saying, you know, maybe we were a little hasty following that rebellious young man. We remember now. We remember all the things David did for us. We remember all the things, how he, he saved us out of the hand of our enemies, delivered us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Absalom, who we anointed over us, we followed him, but he's dead. Now, why speak ye not a word of bringing the king back? Let's, let's encourage the king to come back to Jerusalem. Remember, they had Jerusalem. Notice the last portion of their conversation. Now, therefore, why speak ye not a word of bringing the king back? They are contemplating giving an olive branch to David. Absalom's rebels are considering a reunification with the king. 
to bring back Israel and Judah into one nation once again, bringing David back to the holy city of Jerusalem, which they had in their control. David now hears of Israel's desire to reunite and bring him back to his rightful place of rulership. But Judah, David's own people, they're not so sure. They're hesitant, and rightly so. And rightly so. They just rebelled. Now, just because Absalom is dead, what if Absalom wasn't dead? What if he was still alive? What if they were still rebelling? How can we trust them? So they were a little hesitant. And so David charges them with their hesitation. Notice this. And what is David? He's all about, he's all about reuniting the nation. He wants them to reunite. He wants peace to be in the land. Okay? It, risky, risky, but he still wants peace in the land. And David sent to Zadok and to Abathar the priests. Notice he's going to the priests. He's using the, the clergy. He's standing alongside of the clergy. And that's another lesson in and of itself. In fact, it's a, a whole sermon how the clergy should always be aligned with the civil magistrates to work together for the glory of God. But that we'll have to pick up at a later date. Saying, why are ye the last to bring the king back to this house? Seeing the speech of all Israel has come to the king, even to this house. In other words, tell the priest to go to the Judah's princes. Go to Judah's princes and say, why are you hesitant? Why don't you want to bring the king back? Why don't you want a unification? Because David wants nothing more than to return to the city of peace, to, to Jerusalem. And so in a bold attempt to restore the holy city to himself, he uses the most intimate language to telegraph his love and care for them. This seems to be an effort to remedy the hurt that he has done by discouraging them in light of their victory and by taking sides with Absalom, who is the enemy, and yet he's not afraid to ask what took his people so long to restore him to his rightful throne. And he says, you are my brothers and sisters. You are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Wherefore then are ye the last to bring back the king? But then he does something just no one anticipated. Even reading the narrative, you wouldn't even anticipate this. He calls for an unlikely replacement for Joab. This must have, this must have blew the man's mind. In verse 13, he says, And say to Massa, Art thou not bone of my bones, and of my flesh and those? You are my brother too. God do so to me, and more also, if thou be not captain of the host before me continually, instead of Joab. Massa was Absalom's war chief. Why call him to replace Joab? Well, there's a couple of reasons for this. Well, first of all, Joab had blatantly disobeyed the king's orders. For David, this was the last straw, especially since Joab dis his disobedience resulted in the death of his beloved son. Secondly, David needed to support Israel in order to be restored to the city of Jerusalem, of which Israel was in control of. And so this was both a vengeful move against Joab, but it's also a political move. Vengeful against the disobedient Joab and political for the retaking of the city of Jerusalem. He figured, if I make the war chief of Israel, my war chief, then I'm a shoo-in for Jerusalem. This pronouncement proved successful and resulted in restoring David's favor with the men of Judah, those that he had disgraced and ensured his return to the sea of God. We read that in verse 14. Now, as a result, they meet David and conduct him over the Jordan to bring him back to the city of Jerusalem in verse 15. So the king returned and came to Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king to conduct the king over Jordan. Now hearing that the king was going to cross over Jordan and that he was now going to be the king, he was going to resume his his, his majesty, Shimei 
that reprobate Benjamite decides to go and meet him. Verse 16, And Shimei, the son of Girah, a Benjamite, which was of Behurim, hasted and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. So you have to remember who Shimei was. Shimei was of the same tribe as Saul, of the tribe of Benjamin, and he had a notorious testimony of, at least the tribe had a notorious testimony of being rapists and murderers. We remember that from the book of the Judges. In fact, Shimei himself was the man who cursed King David in the past for being a bloody man of warfare and treachery. And we read this in chapter 16 of 2 Samuel, remember. And when King David came to Berhurim, behold, thence came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah. He came forth and cursed still as he came. And he cast stones at David. And all the servants of the King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left side. Just think about the, the hubris here. You had the army flanking the king and this guy's throwing stones at him. And thus said Shimei when he cursed, Come out, come out, thou bloody man, and thou man of Belial. That word Belial means worthless. You're calling the king a worthless, no good for nothing who was flanked on either side by his army. Very proud, very proud. The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned, and the Lord had delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son. So he was one of the Absalom supporters. And behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. So from the text it would seem that Shimei was, was, was a very, very prideful, wicked man. But from the text of chapter 19, he was some man of stature. He had a warrior position of a chieftain since he meets David with a thousand men. If you had a thousand men under your control, you'd be the head, you'd be the chieftain. Not only does he meet David with his men, but God singles out Ziba as well, who comes alongside of Shimei with his sons and his servants. And we read this in chapter 19, verse 17. And there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons, and his twenty servants with him, and they went over Jordan before the king. So they both went out to meet the king. So upon meeting David, Shimei bows down in honor before the king and begs for forgiveness. Of course, that's what he's going to do. Because he's afraid that David is going to now, is being reinstated, is going to lob his head off. But notice what he says, verse 18 through 20. And there went over a ferry boat to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was come over Jordan and said unto the king, Let not my lord impute iniquity unto me, neither do thou remember that which thy servant did perversely the day that my lord the king went out of Jerusalem, that the king should take it to his heart. For thy servant doth know that I have sinned, Therefore, behold, I am come the first this day of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my Lord the King. Forgive me, I was not thinking properly. Well, we're either going to believe him or we're not. But it does put David to the test. The question for David, is Shimei's repentance sincere? Or is he simply afraid that David would take his revenge upon him now that Absalom and his army have been defeated? And David is once again restored as king. Of course, David couldn't know the man's heart, whether he was sincere or not. One curiosity was that Shimei brings with him this man Ziba. Now, if you remember, Ziba 
was well known to David since he was Mephibosheth's servant who had helped David and his army by equipping them with food and equipment while on the run from the rebellious Absalom. However, these men were deceivers. These men had a deceptive bone that permeated throughout their body. And this was a deceptive tactic since Ziba tells David that Mephibosheth is planning his own rebellion against David. Remember, he said Mephibosheth was planning a rebellion against you. We read this in chapter 16. Ziba had also asked for David to grant to him his grace so as not to become David's enemy. But it was all a ruse. To David's miscredit, as you remember, he initially took Ziba's accusations against Mephibosheth as truth without going to him directly. And we saw that that was a lesson for us too. We needed to go directly to the individual. We had to go directly to the people whom others have accused of disloyalty or slander before we come to any conclusions. And now Ziba comes with Shimei to gain an audience with the king. He's back into the mix of David's reunification attempt. Seeing this, Abishai, the sons of Zeruiah, the son of Zeruiah, obviously seeking retribution for Shimei's assault on the king, calls for his execution. I, you just gotta love this. He sees clearly who this man was and still is. Now, of course, David refuses, but notice in verse 21 and 22. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed Yahweh's anointed? In other words, Yahweh's Messiah, the Lord's anointed, that word anointed in Hebrew is Messiah. And David said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah, that ye should this day be adversaries unto me? Shall there any man be put to death this day in Israel? For do not I know that I am this day king over Israel? I will do what I believe is right. Now, in closing, there are several several considerations here. Firstly, while it may have been the right thing to call for Shimei's execution, it may not have been the right time. Timing is essential. There may be a right thing to do, but it may not be the right time. And if it's done, even though it's right, When it's not the right time, it may turn out wrong. I'll give you a cute little story that I don't usually give, as in cuteness. There's a commercial. It's old now. There's a lovely candlelight dinner, two couples. And the girl's on one side, and the boy's on the other side. And the girl says, you know, I really, I really love you. And the young man on the other side is sitting there, stone-faced cold. And the girl is getting a little exasperated, a little upset. And she's squaring in her seat, and finally she throws down her napkin. She gets up, she leaves. And the young man goes, I really love you too. Timing is everything. So although... It might have been the right thing. And we know it's the right thing because Solomon does execute. But the timing was wrong. And David understood that. I am the king. It will not be this day. Because, secondly, if David would have at that time required Shimei's execution, it might have proven Shimei's accusation 
that he was actually a vengeful, bloody man because of the accusation of Shimei in the past. The third point, David's rebuke was quite harsh, calling Abishai and his brothers adversaries. A very harsh rebuke. And once again, the Hebrew is very explicit. The word that David uses for the word adversary is the word Satan. You are a Satan to me by asking me to do something that is not the right time, even though it might be the right thing. Abishai and his brothers were being accused at this time of being a satanic adversary in the same way that Peter was accused of the same when Jesus said, Get thou behind me, Satan, because you do not save the things that are of God, but the things that are of men. Abishai was saving the things of men. We want justice, we want vengeance, and we want it now. Finally, David then gives the reason why there will be no executions is because he is returned as king over Israel. And this is the time for rejoicing, rejoining, and celebration. Now, this was a political move as well. More than it was a decision based on acknowledging that Shimei was actually repentant. I don't believe David thought he was repentant at all. Nevertheless, David tells the people that no one dies since he has been restored as king over Israel. For do not I know that I am this day king over Israel. And so David promises that Shimei will live, at least from now. We will return to these tense moments in the life of David when we continue in our exposition on the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.